Good day, dear listeners. Steve Breda here with the Management Blueprint podcast. And today's guest with me here is Raghu Bala, the founder and CEO of NetObjects that operates Matrix, a digital asset as a service platform that enable enterprises to harness the power of Internet of Things, AI, and blockchain technologies in constructing web-free marketplaces. lot to unpack, unpack there. Uh, welcome to the show, Raghu. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to uh, to have you here and the lots of uh, trendy things we're going to be talking to about today. Sure. Uh, sure. But let's uh, start with your kind of origin story. How did the idea of creating a digital asset as a service business and, you know, going become an entrepreneur come to you and uh, how do you get here? Sure. So I've been in the software industry for about 30 years. And I've had prior startups where I was a founder or co-founder and uh, sold them to other companies or public companies and so on. And so this uh, idea came to me about almost nine years ago. And I literally incubated it out of my garage with a few other individuals initially. And uh, we started off not as a digital asset as a service. I think every business kind of pivots along the way as, as changes come about. We started off as an IoT business, and IoT is Internet of Things, for those who are not familiar with the term. And basically, it involves uh, collecting data from uh, different types of equipment and, and things like that. So the, the story here is I was a CTO at a media company, and this media company had both uh, digital you know, websites and you know, YouTube videos and those types of things, but they also had physical magazines. And they were about half the market in the US, about 50% of the magazine market, uh, the distribution of magazines that you'll see at uh, newsstands, at the airport and things like that were distributed by us. So if you go to, like, let's say, a Walmart or Walgreens, or when you go to the NCAP, which is where, where you you know check out, you'll see those magazine racks. Most of them were ours. So I told the management, the magazine business was actually you know struggling because people are starting to read more digitally than on print. And uh, so I said, you know, your magazine rack business, I can kind of turn it around and, and make it an intelligent rack, uh, something called a smart rack. And hmm. at that time, it sounded very odd to them. Like, you know, what are you talking about? So my rack actually, we proved that you could increase sales by about 14% by just doing some simple things like collecting data. Like, uh, you know, you can figure out which uh, magazines people are picking up and which magazines people are not picking up. Or if you turn on a small light, when people walk towards it, it gets people's attention and they pick up the magazine and actually buy. So we could raise the sales just by doing some simple data collection and some simple activities. So then that uh, that company that I worked for didn't go for it. In the long run, they were more steeped in their own magazine traditions and so on. And so about a couple of years later, a, a few of the engineers who worked with me and myself, we started to just tinker around in the in the garage and started net objects and uh, and then later on what i discovered was collecting data is just one part of what is going to happen in the machine economy so if you look at the whole uh, space of technology and we have gone through many revolutions pc revolution and this and that but but in the in the last 10 15 years we've gone through what is called gig economy which is like people sort of working for their own, uh, using Upwork or TaskRabbit and things like that. Then you've had the sharing economy, which is like uh, Uber and Airbnb and so on. 
Now you are having the creator economy, which is what you're hearing in the press about uh, NFTs and so on. And then the upcoming economy is going to be the machine economy, where you're going to have self-driving cars, robots, drones, and things of that nature start to make decisions on their own. So we started NetObject saying like, okay, we are now able to collect data uh, from inanimate objects and so on. That's one part of it, IoT. Then once we collect the data, some decision has to be made that is AI. And then we have to record that information somewhere securely, and that's blockchain. And um, so this way, what you have is all these three components coming together to form sort of an intelligent ecosystem. Simultaneously, you know, so anyway, I'll stop there, but that's that's the sort of like origin of the idea. And that's how we have evolved it over this uh, period of time. That's fascinating. So I love how you connected the Internet of Things, which collecting data with the decision-making, AI, intelligent uh, automation, and then storing the information in the blockchain so it doesn't require human interaction. So mm-hmm. what do you call this? I mean, you said ecosystem, but is there another way to call uh, this, you know, this, this combination of these ideas? Sure. So right now, the, the big catchphrase, like you said earlier on, is Web3. So in the Web2 world, so the, if you look at the web itself, it's taken three iterations to get here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first iteration was getting people online, you know, people getting email, websites, things of that nature. Then the second iteration was things like people getting uh, mobile phones, smartphones, cloud, uh, big data, and, and things of that nature. Now in Web3, what's happened is the world has evolved beyond these first two phases and in the first two phases, what also happened, uh, kind of like uh, it kind of evolved into this was some companies started to create a lot of market power because they started to collect a lot of data on all of us, Facebook, Google, Apple, and so on. And so the Web3 ecosystem or Web3 movement almost is very much against centralized data repositories and certain companies benefiting at the, at, the, at the expense of consumers. And the Web3 ecosystem is all about decentralization, about the data being shared among everyone. It's being transparent and it's not opaque and you don't, you know, you don't need to go to some central authority to, to figure out what it is. So this applies to things like even your, your personal healthcare information or your credit reports or uh, any sort of information where it's transparent. If you have access, you can get access to it if you want to. And no one person controls it and can, can benefit at the expense of others. That's, that's the, the whole thing. But this Web3 movement, a lot of it is blockchain-based, but AI and IoT are good, uh, what we call, accompanying technologies for this because IoT is a very good way of collecting data and uh, AI is very important to find anomalies, fraud, uh, patterns in the data, and so on, that that might indicate some some something wrong. Uh, so so AI is very good in that sense. And of course, there are many many other uses for AI, like computer vision and robotics and things like that. But but so AI is being employed in this way. So I would say a good catchphrase for all of this would be like Web three, uh, a short of some other phrase for now. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that makes it much clearer for me. I mean, I watched some of the videos on your website, which was enlightening, but this, this, is, this is even better and it's a very simple way of, of phrasing it. So, so what you're saying is that in the future, we could get to a point where our information is not going to be a free-for-all. We can control it. It's going to be in blockchains. 
and it's going to be secure and AIs are going to be guarding the information so that people cannot steal it or uh, or cheat with it. Uh, is this kind of the, the future yeah. so, I mean, the <clears throat> scenario, obviously? It's more democratization of data and you'll have different systems to, to monitor <laughs> things and so on. But you know the the thing is the power is with uh, all of us as opposed to uh, you know certain companies and organizations controlling things. A good example would be like like many people have encountered this where their credit report might have some data it may not be hundred percent accurate. And unless you go to a credit bureau and you find out and you dig around and you call them a hundred times and then they'll only change it then and there's no incentive for them to change it and who loses you lose. Or your Carfax report. A Carfax is a company. But if you had an accident or whatever and they recorded it wrongly, this happened to me. My, my wife had a fender bender, but they recorded the same fender bender twice. And so it counted as two accidents. I'm like, no, it's not two accidents. Someone hit us. We didn't hit anyone. Someone hit us and it happened once. And there's only one small scratch. It was nothing. But there's actually like two accidents. It's like, that's not right. But there's no way to change it. Very hard to change these things. And that's because someone is controlling it and it's very hard to convince that someone whereas if it's in the public domain then you have some some uh, amount of power to to say hey you know what this is wrong i'm fl- going to flag it and so on so it's like uh, you know like what you try to get to democratization of data is what we're talking about at the end of the day okay all right so it's we're not solve all our problems but it's going to solve some of our problems sure Got it. So we'll, we'll talk more about the whole idea of the Web3 and digital assets as a service and, and uh, the business <clears throat> that you are in. Sure. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about your management blueprint. And we had a conversation before we came on the show and you talked about the four different found, funding sources that you have experimented with. Sure. And, uh, and you, you basically <clears throat> figured out you know, what are the pros and cons for each. So uh, so would you mind uh, telling yeah, us yeah. about that? Absolutely. So so we actually bootstrapped this company. And initially, I had to put in my own funds. And, you know, I mortgaged my house. And I also tapped into all sorts of savings and so on. So obviously, the founder's funds are the first source of revenue, our first source of funding. And, and for every business, actually, what is the most important uh, aspect of every business uh, for it to continue operations is actually cash flow. So my first flow, first source of cash flow is my own funds. Second source of cash flow, I went to uh, actually I went to um, uh, get funding from investment sources. So investment sources there are many today actually due to uh, crowdfunding and so on. We have many many choices actually. So we actually tapped into Reg CF, which is a, reg, a regulation crowdfunding. So you can get up to a million dollars and we have to run through various campaigns. We ran it twice. We, we got some funding. And then we also tapped into uh, angels and, uh, and uh, friends and family and that type of funding in the investment. So I want to categorize it as your own funds. Now we are talking about investment funds. So investment fund has got Reg CF, friends and family, angels. We went through all of those. And we also got institutional capital in the in the in the investment uh, bucket, and uh, all of these have got the negative of they take equity, so nobody's going to give you funds as an investment without taking equity. So you give up equity. The third is loans. 
So loans, again, there are many types of loans these days. You can have, you know, you've got SBA loans, government loans, and those types of loans, which are long-term loans. You also have very short-term loans, which are revenue-based financing, which is against your revenue. Short-term loans, they tend to be quite high interest and, uh, you know, not advisable a lot of times. But we had some very rough patches where we even went down to taking those types of loans. And... Um, but the benefit of loans is that you don't give up equity. You pay them off as long as the interest rate is something you can you can kind of like um, deal with. Then you know once it's paid, they are gone, and uh, so they serve their purpose and they don't own a part of you. And the and the fourth type of uh, 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 funding, the best type of funding that everyone wants is sales. <laughs> Other people, you know, your customers' money. That's the best. But in there, there lies one funny thing that everyone needs to be aware of. Uh, it depends on when the customer pays. So you can record in your, in your accounting software that, hey, I've got sales, I've got uh, sales. But if the sales is cash-based, that's great. It converts into cash flow immediately. But if the sale is accounts receivable, and this uh, company will pay you 30, 60, 90, 180 days, now you have to float your company for those uh, that length of time while the money is coming. So sometimes you can have a lot of AR, but not a lot of cash flow. So you could be in trouble even with sales. I just want to warn people that sales does not equate to cash. So so it's it's a kind of a mirage sometimes. So you have to be careful. And so you can and sometimes it, there have been cases where uh, someone someone owed my company money and they went bankrupt. So what? It's just an AR in my book. I never collected on it. It's gone. We rendered the services and nothing happened. So those are all the gotchas with sales. But if you can convert it to cash, it's the best sort of, of thing because you don't give up equity. You don't pay interest. So it's better than loan or, uh, or investment, right? So, so yeah. it's good. No, I agree. I actually, I had a client 15 years ago who ran a contract research organization. It was basically drug research new drugs that will come to the market. They were testing it. They were, um, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, human testing. And the beauty of the business was that they, uh, their clients paid upfront. They were big pharmaceutical companies. They paid them upfront so they could grow like nobody's business. They didn't have any capital constraints. And uh, as long as they delivered and uh, the services, then they were fine. And he scaled this company really rapidly within four or five years, became market leader, and he then flipped it, sold it to an Italian consolidator. And that was the perfect business because there was basically no inventory. There was no receivables. So no working capital had to be tied down. And it was mainly services. They used the facilities of hospitals. So there was no capital equipment that they had to uh, purchase. Perfect uh, kind of business. And... Uh, that's, uh, you know, but on the other hand, I had another client who were in the construction business and they were growing fast, but their customers were the insurance companies and they would not pay them until 60 to 90 days. And they basically ran out of cash and then they went into a credit line and then the bank said, we cannot lend you any more money. And the only solution for them was to downsize the business mm. and basically collect the cash and then just run you know, grow the business to the extent that they could internally finance it, yeah. uh, which was a major constraint. So let's talk a little bit about the equity because obviously own resources, we all know that if you have money, we can put it in the business and, you know, uh, obviously family, you don't want to disappoint your family members, but <laughs> it is what it is. 
but the equity, I mean, there are so many different types of equity and we touched upon crowdfunding. Uh, you mentioned about the reg, is it CF? And uh, that is reg A, B, C, D, and then the CF, which is crowdfunding. Uh, so okay, that's crowdfunding, okay. <clears throat> so, yeah. uh, so tell me a little bit about this crowdfunding because it's a little bit of a mystical thing. You know, people go out and they say, hey, uh, be uh, this is a new product we have this new watch and you you know you're gonna give us this kind of money you're gonna get the newest watch and this and that it sounds like pre-sale of product but then in other cases you can get a course funded where people don't get anything else than the feeling that they funded you so how does this whole crowd yeah yeah so I'll, I'll tell you yeah, good question. So there are two types of uh, crowdfunding. One is product crowdfunding, which is what you're talking about, like a watch or some sort of gadget that you buy. And basically, that is a site like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and so on. And what they do is, if you want to manufacture a product and you just manufacture, you just 3D printed one sample just to show people, okay, this is roughly what it does. And then you really need funds for manufacturing, tooling, scale, uh, all the machinery, all of the materials. And that might take, you know, uh, probably uh, six digits to, to get going. Uh, in any sort of small small size manufacturing takes about a few hundred thousand usually. So now you want to do that. What you can do is you can go to these Indiegogo or Kickstarter and try to run a campaign and basically come, uh, customers prepay for, the, for that gadget. Mm-hmm. And you use that to manufacture and, and then you give them the product at the end of the cycle. Now, the benefit of that is the people crowdfunding are not taking equity and they are not taking they are not charging you interest so it's an interest free uh, cash you know resource if you have a nice product so it's a very interesting form of funding now the risk is on the consumer side because you know i don't know what percentage of companies never manufacture the product at all you know maybe they try they fail whatever i don't know the statistics there but it's an interesting concept if you want to launch a new physical product especially it's not that good for services it's mainly for products mm-hmm. now the equity crowdfunding is a second type of crowdfunding the equity crowdfunding basically you are giving up equity you're telling uh, people small investors you can come in and this includes accredited and non-accredited investors so you can come in and and you can you know invest as low as uh, you know usually 250 dollars or something like that up to 2000 5000 and so on you can set the limits on the on the floor and the ceiling but uh, typically that's what that's what you're doing now this has got a pro and a con it's it's got a it's okay if you are trying to run a small business but if, in the later rounds of your funding if you want to go and do a series a or institutional capital now your cap table is kind of messed up because you have a lot of small guys at you know 250 500 1000 2000 and things like that that the institutional capital guys generally don't like to see so that's the downside just be aware of that uh, so so if you if you don't and nowadays they say you can group it but still the lawyers that I've dealt with they always don't like a lot of small investors but if you want to remain at a kind of a lifestyle business and not really, you know, go for institutional capital, it's a good, good method. Mm-hmm. So it's got some limitations. So it's not a really good tool to launch a high growth business that you want to scale because you're going to bump into the uh, uh, the problem. I mean, I've, I've heard this before, uh, before crowdfunding became a thing. 
about 10 years ago, I, I found this uh, investor and he did a private placement. It was a biotech company and he went to people that he knew and um, you know, business associates, um, partners, whatever. And they gave him money and he ran into the same exact problem that it these people so he said that when things are good then these people are happy they you know they, they no problem to deal with but when things start to go awry because they under, don't understand the business and they get cold feet and then they start to call him all the time and he said it was more trouble than it was worth and yeah. then he basically got an institutional person and he bought them all out and he went into the institutional direction yeah yeah, that's, like a, that's that contact. Yeah, so it's a similar thing. Okay, so I also talked about different types of debt. So that the two that you mentioned of the mm-hmm. SBA on the one hand, which is typically low interest, and you know the government is not going to go after after you unless, I mean, I don't know. Even if you if you go out of business, they will probably not going to go after your personal assets. Whereas yeah. you have got this revenue based where every week you have to show up with a certain amount of cash can be really high pressure. Um, right. And in between, you, have, you have in between also bank loans, like a line of credit. Usually the bank loans, what I found is they want personal guarantees mm-hmm. and, and so on. And also you have in between, you have other things like credit card and even credit card that are different types. You have the credit cards and then you have a kind of a cash advance type of card, like, a, you know, like Amex uh, without limits. And then you have a, a, a card like Brex, which is for startups. And Brex, basically Brex, the way it works is you don't need personal guarantees, but then you must at least have $25,000 in your account. Once it dips below $25,000, they don't forward you any more money. But once it's above, you can use the Brex card to pay your bills. And then you can accrue points for other services that you might use, like Uber and uh, you know a bunch of other online services, uh, other SaaS services that you can, if you're using them, you can get credits for those. So by using more, you can actually pay off these other services that help you run your company, things like that. So there are a bunch of alternatives these days. What about lending clubs? Are you familiar with those? I've never used those. So there's lending clubs and then obviously there's mezzanine financing, which is quasi equity and private equity funds often use it as as kind of uh, as a first priority, it's like a preference share where the mezzanine gets paid out first. They typically want a fixed uh, rate return. Sometimes they want warrants, which gives them an option of the equity, but typically it's a high fixed rate, maybe 12, 15%. And then the private equity makes that 25%. Uh, Are there mezzanine funds that is available for without a sponsor, without a private equity group, just yeah, yeah, that is. There are convertible notes, convertible debt. That's one way. Convertible debt is one way of getting uh, the funding. Also, it's not very popular in America, but but uh, outside America, in the crypto world, there is also what we call SAF, uh, like a, a agreement for future token, simple agreement for future tokens. So that means you launch your token, the person is investing in you for tokens and they are hoping that the token appreciates. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, so you have SAFT and you also have convertible note. Convertible note basically says, I'm lending you money. And then when you get your next round of investment, I will convert my note into, into equity. At the uh, same 
at the same price as the same valuation as the next one? I think I think you'll get a kind of a better value. You'll get more for your money because let's say that when you do your um, equity raise, your valuation is here. But when you are going for the convertible note, your valuation is here. But the guy comes in here will be able to buy this much, you know, like the equity, which is worth so much at this price. Mm-hmm. So he'll be able to convert at a lower price. So he'll get, you know, sort of like more shares than if he had to buy at a higher price. That that sort of thing. It's baked in. And also, if if you never go for a next round of funding and your company tanks, there is provisions for you to pay them back. As a, it becomes a loan. So it's like a convertible debt can become a loan or it can become equity. If it succeeds, the guy wants to convert. If it fails, he wants his money back. It's kind of like uh, it can work both ways. So Interesting, interesting. So we could talk a lot about the crypto world and, and other things, but uh, let me ask you about your your business, uh, the platform as a ser- digital assets as a service. So, uh, so is this the Web3? And kind of uh, stringing together the the tokens and the NFTs, the AI and the blockchain, or is this something else? Yeah, it's the same. Let me just explain uh, what we are, what we do. So we look at the world of assets as uh, three primary categories: uh, digital assets, things which are innately digital, mm-hmm. which could be music, movies, avatars, uh, you know, any sort of asset that is already in digital format. The second is physical assets, could be smart city assets like containers or fleet of trucks or buildings or anything like that. Then uh, could be the last, third one is dynamic assets, things which you have to measure, water, energy, carbon credits, and so on. You cannot, you cannot touch it, but you have to measure it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So now these three classes of assets have been there for a long time, but what happens is what becomes interesting now with the world of uh, blockchain and so on is you are able to tokenize it. That means you are able to almost take this asset class and put a almost a paper, a, a tradable piece of paper around it. So it becomes is it, a is token. It like securitization. Exactly. It's securitization of the asset mm-hmm. using a token. Now, why do you want to do this? A lot of people say, well, why do I want to do this? Now, the benefit of doing this is couple of things. And of, of course, there are more things than this. The first thing is by securitizing this, this uh, asset, now you can trade it, which is very hard to do otherwise. And when you trade it, you can also trade it, uh, to, you know, you trade it, why do you trade it? You trade it to unlock liquidity. So you create a liquid market for it. And you can also fractionalize it. So I live in, you know, in California where real estate prices are quite high. And one of the things that has happened in the, I, one of my friends is, who is a real estate mentioned this to me, that in LA County now, they have removed this kind of covenant that says that a single family home has to be occupied by a single family. It no longer needs to be occupied by a single family. That means you can have a multi-generational family occupying a single family home. So what does that mean? Because, you know, like um, home prices are so high that people cannot afford, let's say. Now, mm-hmm. what happens is, let's say there are there's a brother and his family, and he, you know, two families living together, brother and their wife and kids, they all can live in a single house, or even parents and so on can live in a single house. It's not single family home now. It's kind of like a multi-family home, but they can pay the mortgage together. 
that sort of thing. Now, if you tokenize this, what happens is the house is tokenized. You can now have fractional ownership. Mm -hmm. Or even for millennials, let's look at millennials. Like in the past, they might have to rent homes in like major metro cities when they start off, uh, you know, work their working lives after college. Now these millennials could potentially buy an apartment together. It's fractional life. They own each own something. Like you know, maybe four of them own twenty five percent each. And then when they want to sell off, one guy moves out or something. He sells his twenty five percent to some other person who takes over. And also the other thing is you can also not only live in the home that you 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 bought as a, a fractional token. You can actually invest. And there are a lot of investment websites that have sprung up in the last year, which allow fractional investment in real estate. So if previously you wanted to invest in real estate and you had to pony up a million dollars to go and buy an investment property, you don't need to do that. Now you can pony up $10,000 and get into real estate. And it's almost like a REIT, uh, like in the stock market, there are REITs, yes. which do this. This is a more informal form of REIT. And so tokenized fractional real estate is becoming a very big thing these days. So, so that's, that's one reason why people are starting to tokenize various assets and then unlocking the liquidity. And we have done a number of projects in the space, like we have tokenized diamonds. So we have got $6 billion worth of diamonds. And, um, and not that people want to own diamonds in a fractionalized manner, but you can... Uh, now borrow against the diamond because diamond, unlike gold, gold has got a price, COMEX price. You can see how many dollars an ounce. Go and look it up on uh, any you know CNBC or something like that. But then, if uh, the price of diamond is very different, it's not as liquid as gold. But once you tokenize it, it becomes liquid. Now you can actually borrow like so much loan to asset value, and the diamond's value is actually uh, usually predicated on cut, color, clarity, and carrots the four C's of diamonds. Mm -hmm. So like this, many, many asset classes, which are sort of illiquid, now can become liquid. And in some cases, allow for fractional ownership. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, so I, I heard that some uh, celebrities, you know, people buy fractional real estate close to a celebrity so they can say that he or she is my neighbor <laughs> um, and, uh, and such things, which, which is very weird. Uh, what I don't understand is how you can you know, sell art as a token and how do people enjoy? So let's say I paint a picture. Well, no one would pay for that, but let's say there's a picture that I own. I digitalize it. I, you know, I create a high quality digital version of it, put it in the, on the internet. Then uh, why would people pay for that? So that, I know I'll, I'll try to give you an answer, but I'm not an art connoisseur. So I, I, I find it somewhat difficult uh, in some cases, but a lot of people find uh, that to be a very uh, interesting form of uh, collectible. And, and they think that uh, they believe, at least, that that's got value. So it's very hard to assess value in this world. You know, one man's trash is another man's treasure sort of thing. But people feel that digital art is as good as the painted works. And you could draw it on Photoshop. You don't even need to be, uh, you know, painted on a canvas. And they think that that's... And these artists are now, you know, the new, the, the uh, you know, like the Van Goghs of this era. Okay, so, so you think that this is this is unique, this is different, and it it, it garners so much value, and that value uh, is uh, captured via an NFT. 
And, and for people who are of a certain age or generation, we might roll our eyes and think like, what the heck is this? But, you know, other people feel otherwise. But the same thing has happened to us many, many times before, actually on many occasions. And we don't, maybe you have to remember. So when, uh, you know, when uh, websites and internet came about, you know, domains were available, a lot of domains were available and people didn't invest in domains. I know some people made a killing in domains, but a lot of people thought, ah, what the heck, I don't need to, what, what is the domain, what's the, what's the big deal? And then later on, there was a land grab for domains and then it became like, wow, this is very valuable to have this because I can build a business or some other brand would want it or whatever it is. So, so the same way we sometimes like, you know, we don't see the value initially and then later on we realized, oh boy, I'll give you a simple example um, and something that I went out of character and did myself. So you, some of you might have heard of Metaverse. So Metaverse is this virtual real estate that's out there. And uh, there are a couple of sites like uh, Decentraland and the Sandbox. And there are a few others that are coming up. And uh, so on Decentraland, a plot of land costs a certain amount of money. So I bought two plots of land. Uh, for like fifteen thousand dollars, and uh, you know, for my company and all my workers said, "You're crazy! What did you spend your money on? Like this is nuts! This is just virtual real estate." And I said, "Well, you know, that's what you think, but I look at it like the same domain type of thing. This virtual real estate is scarce, and sooner or later it will run out, and so everyone will be after it. So within three months, that virtual real estate appreciated six hundred percent." Because it's running out of space. So, so we probably don't have time for this on this podcast. But I'd be curious: why? How can you run out of virtual real estate? Can you yeah. not create it uh, at will? At least, at least they purposely make it scarce. They don't make it. Okay. They All purposely right. like even Bitcoin has got a maximum number of Bitcoins that can be minted. Like twenty-one thousand. So it's the same principle as the Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. So uh, one more thing I want to ask before we wrap this up, because we come to the end towards the end of the time here you wrote a short blog note the other day about the russian war in the U- in ukraine and you said that it could create a technology breakthrough in the crypto world would you uh, would you elaborate on that sure kind of so, so if you look at the banking system as such they use currently all the banks are connected with the other banks both locally and overseas uh, using certain mechanisms like within America, for example, you use the ACH system to transfer money from one bank to another. But when you uh, cross borders, use SWIFT. So SWIFT is one of the networks that all the banks are connected to. Now, what we're saying is Russian and Ukrainian banks are going to be off of SWIFT. So once they're off of SWIFT, what happens is they are no longer connected to the rest of the world. So how do you move money? And this is already happening right now where uh, I read some some articles and so on, where people are moving money through crypto networks, which are kind of an alternate path to SWIFT. And what happens is if, if people start to use this alternate path and find that it's efficient and it does the job, what happens in the long run is they'll say, well, I can live off the banking grid. I don't need the banks. I might as well just... I get used to this other thing and it's good enough. Why do I need the bank? So so that's why I said that this could be a watershed moment where people, when they are deprived of something, they find another way and they say they get used to it. And so that might make this first way obsolete. 
especially the second way is more efficient, faster, cheaper, and so on. Then they'll just say, you know what, I don't need to go back to this. What, what, like, you know, what makes me want to go back to this? So yes. the banks have to be very careful because by doing, by, by, by prevent, you know, doing whatever that they're doing, they, they might actually have a backlash. In the hands of the competition. They are exactly. having the competitors uh, get off the ground. Yes, yeah, exactly. and then they gain momentum, and uh, they're going to be too too fast to catch anymore. That's right. That's, that's exactly that's right. interesting. That's interesting. Well, Raghu, listen, there's a lot, uh, lot in there. A very interesting topic. May be a little bit tangential to uh, our topic here, the management blueprints. But definitely, the four ways of raising money is an excellent blueprint for people. And we dipped a little bit into deeper into the kind of debts that you can borrow, the kind of uh, equity that you can raise and also to be very careful with using revenue because if you run up a, a bunch of receivables then you could uh, you know you could lose the money uh, uh, on the on the flip side that you gain by by uh, by raising your revenue so thank you uh, ragu for sharing all that so sure. if people would like to connect with you uh, where can they find you or can they reach you sure. uh, how can you they learn about uh, net objects and, and your services the best is, uh, you know, for company, the website is that www.netobjects.com, N-E-T-O-B-J-E-X.com. For me personally, I uh, welcome people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there, and uh, that'll be the best way to get in touch. Okay, well, definitely uh, check out NetObjects. It's a really uh, in good site, and there are some excellent explainer videos, short ones, which tell you about the different kind of web three services very highly educational i definitely uh, recommend so net objects with an x at the end and ragu bala you can find him on linkedin and please uh, reach out to him if you need further information ragu enjoy talking to you thanks for coming on the show and for those of you listening if you enjoy the show please don't forget to rate and review us on apple podcast and subscribe on youtube and Thank stay you, tuned. Steve. Next week, we'll have another exciting entrepreneur coming to the show. Have a great day.